welcome again. Tonight I shall be speaking about how to increase the amount of time you spend at leisure and also how to improve the quality of that time. I'm joined as usual by Debbie Isaac, who put the Deb in debate, and Gordon Kennedy, who put the donkey dong in Gordon Kennedy. <laughs> now, Gordon, you always strike me as someone who's very relaxed. Well, I find that chanting has changed my life. Mm, chanting doesn't change anything by itself. Demonstrations teach us that you have to set fire to some cars to really make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> On with the programme. The first section of tonight's talk about maximising your leisure is subtitled How Not to Work. One obvious way not to work is to be a member of the royal family. <laughs> it does seem, however, that members of the royal family get bored with having nothing to do. Prince Edward and Sophie Wessex-Bexter attempted to hold on to careers in PR, but somehow managed to become hated by their own profession. It seems odd that PR people have a pecking order and that they feel entitled to look down on anybody, but I suppose public relations has its own code of ethics, and to ordinary decent PR people, the Wessexes were nonces, the lowest of the low, kept in a segregated wing of Soho. <laughs> of course, Prince Charles has never even attempted a career. He just waits patiently and in hope that one day he'll get a shot at the title. <laughs> so bored is he that he spends his days firing off indignant letters to the government. You'd think he'd have his hands full writing to his local papers. He lives in enough places. <laughs> but instead, he writes to the government, railing against one thing and another. Political correctness is one of his bugbears, and I have to wonder what people mean when they say they are against political correctness. Do they mean that we should revert to calling black people savages and disabled people freaks? And isn't there a kind of right-wing political correctness, whereby the idiot spawn of incestuous German robber barons gets to be called your royal highness? <laughs> Herein lies a problem with becoming a member of the royal family. The talent for being born privileged is hereditary. <laughs> and if you do marry in, your future in it isn't guaranteed, as the experience of previous royal wives shows. It's a precarious profession, subject to fickle favour and fortune. It's feast or famine interspersed with vomiting and colonic irrigation. <laughs> There is guaranteed wealth, but these women already come from backgrounds that guarantee wealth and light toil, if any. So they must see it not as a new start, but as a promotion, unlike most of us who would see it as the ultimate in early retirement. <laughs> which brings me on to my next suggestion for not working, which is to retire. Uh, hold on, Jeremy, before you move on, we've just had an email from ex-royal butler Paul Burrell. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, dear BBC... I'm probably better placed than anyone living to tell the inside story of none other than the royal family themselves. I remember one time me and the Queen were playing pool in the pub, and she said, You know, Polly, might have I call you Polly, there are times when I'd like to run off like Audrey Hepburn in Roman Holiday. After we made frenzied animal love, she told me how she'd been abducted by aliens, hired by agents of the Tsar, who told her of the dangers of anyone who knew Diana. Certain questions need answering. Who is Kaiser Sozi? <laughs> Why were Anne's dogs so keen to get at those children in Windsor Great Park? <laughs> what happened at the crash scene in Paris? And why was Diana's brain removed before Prince Charles proposed to her? <laughs> Any chance of a few quid? Your humble servant, Paul Burrell. What does he do now, by the way? After Diana died, he opened a florist. Oh, I wondered what had happened to all those flowers. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> we were talking about retirement. Unfortunately, the government is not content with the fact that the British work the longest hours in Europe. 
It looks as though most of us are going to have to keep working well past 65. We'll finally have time to relax when we have just enough strength to dissolve a Werther's original if we keep our mouths closed and are hating up full. <laughs> I suppose you might argue that being infirm to the point of leisure is a kind of relaxation, but most of us would like to have enough energy to enjoy retirement, and the videos in the post office don't bode well. I mean, stair lifts are fun, but they're hardly Alton Towers. <laughs> and you get more of a workout lying at the bottom of the stairs pressing your panic button. <laughs> that said, there are people of 70 who are fitter than I am now. Unfortunately, it's hard to repair the damage caused by years of neglect. Last year, I did my knees in. I had begun the year, as always, with a resolution. And what better thing for a drunk, middle-aged man with a family history of heart disease than to decide than to go running for the first time in 11 years. <laughs> I began by digging out my snuggliest sweat clothes, by which I mean clothes likely to produce a sweat rather than clothes bought from Gap. <laughs> I put on some nice, big, bouncy trainers, hitherto only worn like the sweat clothes for getting the papers when I couldn't be asked to get dressed properly, and I set off. Mercifully, my heart didn't burst, but it was very grim indeed, and the next time was no easier. After three tries in one week, I had managed to knock a mile off my distance and was walking like Douglas Bader in a muddy field. <laughs> now, younger listeners might be thinking, who's Douglas Bader? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Douglas Bader was a hero of the RAF, the Red Army faction, also known as the Bader-Meinhof Group which he founded with Ulrika Johnson. <laughs> Suffice it to say, Bada had a funny walk, or at least he did in a musical biopic, Bada Bing, Bada Boom, <laughs> starring Joe Pesci as Sabine Crosby, Sir Kenneth Branagh as Douglas, and Denise Van Damme as Ulrika. Anyhow, my knees, ankles and hips having fused into their sockets, I realised that if I was serious about running, I was going to have to do the warming up business, whether I wanted to or not. At 29, I could get away without stretching before a run. Once over 40, you can barely get away without stretching before a stretch. <laughs> I also bought some of those stretchy supports from the chemists to hold my bones in. So the jogging bottoms now had a cosmetic role. As well as being nice and warm, they hid the fact that my legs were held together with elastic. <laughs> but one day, my left knee just folded, swelled up, and a physio signed my discharge papers from the running community. So I was forced to give up before having to decide what I'd do when the weather got warmer. The dilemma being whether to swap sweatpants for shorts and reveal the tubigrate mummification of my lower limbs. <laughs> I despise men who run bare-legged in cold weather. I know it's supposed to look very manly to belt round tooting back common in a sleeveless top and short shorts, but apart from the shoes, they look like Geordie lasses on a night out. <laughs> As for women joggers, Debbie, I believe you've been looking at some of the latest sports fashions for women. Yes, I've been looking at some of the best buys in women's sporting lingerie. Most of it's made in Malaysia, and it's very tight and brief because tiny hands can't sew larger garments. <laughs> and I have to say, it's practical, sporty, liberating, and obviously designed by men. Hmm. What are those little cones? Well, larger girls face the perennial problem of chafed nipples while running. So these are clever little nipple shields. And they go inside the bra? No, they just stick on with double-sided tape, and the tassels are attached with Velcro. Oh. <laughs> Alternatively, you can choose this sports bra, which is chafe-free because of these rather clever peepholes. Mm. Here are our cycling shorts. They are tight, but there's plenty of give in this Lycra fishnet blend. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, here we have a rubber jogging thong with studded waistband and cling film gusset. Mm. 
Uh, do any of the garments take account of the danger of injury? Oh, yes, indeed. This outfit is a nurse's uniform. Ideal if you need to give mouth-to-mouth -mouth or spank somebody for not doing their warm-up exercises like a good boy. Again, Velcro fastening, so when you're too hot, it quickly pops off to reveal a black leather athletic basque with Lenny Reef and Star motif. <laughs> See, women should, of course, wear what they like. It's really not for a man to assume that a woman is making a statement by wearing a revealing item of clothing. Exactly. So your best bet is to wait for another woman to make the comment and then agree. Right. <laughs> now, of course, there are other things you can do to stay fit. Any man in a relationship knows the words... If you need some exercise, you can take all your belongings to the dump. The best way to stay fit is to incorporate exercise into your routine. Instead of driving to the car wash, walk there briskly and try and catch some suds in a bucket to bring home. <laughs> Instead of using the lift, buy an ice pick and climb up the front of the building. Put a brick in each slipper. You'll feel taller and more confident, and your shuffling gait will simulate the full body workout of cross-country skiing. And you don't need fancy equipment to exercise. Instead of dumbbells, I just have a tin of baked beans in each hand, although the juice runs through my fingers and most of the beans fall out during the bicep curl. Of course, beans are also a valuable source of fibre, and you increase that fibre content as you scrape them off the carpet and into the saucepan. <laughs> fibre is the key to healthy bowels and good for circulation. Whole wheat pasta not only dramatically increases the fibre content of a meal, but means that instead of tucking into an authentic Italian delight, you're eating something with the taste and texture of an unravelled sweater. <laughs> Reducing your salt intake will lower your blood pressure by removing any excitement from the process of eating. <laughs> and cutting out caffeine ensures that you'll get plenty of rest during the day. <laughs> In other words, you have to balance present pleasure against future vitality, and you might decide that if a healthy retirement means eating rice cakes now, you'd rather chow down on both barrels of a 12-bore shotgun. <laughs> But what about the financial implications of stopping work? Regular listeners to Moneybox are joyless, petty, grasping Herberts. Who will... <laughs> Who will be only too aware that private pensions are now synonymous with scandal, mis-selling and lost investment? But Gordon, I believe you've been looking at some of our options for providing for the future. Now that's right, Jeremy. Uh, if you don't take out a private pension and you don't have an occupational one, you'll find it hard to subsist on the state pension, especially as it's going to be abolished. <laughs> and you'll find it hard to retire early unless you take out some accident insurance and get lucky. <laughs> the good news is uh, the increasing role of the private sector guarantees a dangerous future for most of us. Comprehensive air traffic control is being phased out with passengers encouraged to take up private parachutes. And if it loses the strike, the fire brigade will be forced to offer reduced cover at night. Presumably on the basis that although there are more fatalities at night, having a house full of smoke doesn't make any difference in the dark because you can't see anyway. Exactly. <laughs> However, some efforts are being made to improve the rolling stock on the railways. Virgin are bringing in tilting trains. These will not be able to operate at high speed, but will be able to do wheelies over the bits of the track maintained <laughs> by Jarvis and Balfour Beatty. Mm. Thank you, Gordon. Not at all. Of course, it's easiest to stop work when the decision isn't yours, but being made redundant isn't always as straightforward as you might think. You might think it's a question of an industry becoming uneconomic or obsolete or recognised as dangerous, but it's not that simple. Nuclear power has proved to be an expensive, perilous and unnecessary way of generating electricity. That's not to say I think nuclear power workers should be sacked. 
If they want to work, they could be usefully redeployed doing all kinds of useful things. For example, as pronunciation wardens, listening out for people who say nuclear and giving them a slap. <laughs> the industry has kept going, not so much to produce electricity, but because of what are ostensibly its byproducts. Weapons-grade byproducts, such as plutonium, depleted uranium, sunny delight, and so forth. <laughs> And its apologists justify the industry because it doesn't produce carbon dioxide. Ooh. <laughs> Say what you like about Dr. Crippen, he never used a soda stream. <laughs> so what does provoke employers to lay off workers? Sometimes political considerations, as with the miners, but generally short-term profits. Call centres were the fastest-growing employers in this country until recently. So why are their staff now being made redundant? Not because they are, in essence, nuisance callers. I might feel glad if I knew that never again would anyone ring me asking me if I know how much I pay for my domestic home contents insurance. I mean, if I knew how much I pay for my domestic home contents insurance, I would kill myself. <laughs> if that information were on the tip of my tongue... I'm glad you asked me that. I've been meaning to unburden myself of information for some considerable time. But no, I will still be subject to harassment by harassed cold-calling salespeople. It's just that now they will be in India, where not only are the wages lower, but people speak better English. <laughs> but these exploited Indian workers are not even allowed to admit on the phone that they're in India. But next time you phone an emergency breakdown service and they take a really long time to show up, you'll know why. All in all, not working doesn't seem to be a very practical solution to the problem of maximising leisure. Perhaps we need to make better use of what leisure time we have. But what do we do with our weekends? Debbie, I imagine you love to shop. Well, Jeremy, us girls love nothing better than a bit of retail therapy. Oh, yes, I know what you like. Yes? Shop till you drop. Yes, it sublimates all our thwarted hopes and aspirations. Does it? Interesting. Well, that's not really the point I was making. The, the, the point I'm making is that shopping isn't actually very relaxing, especially when we are at an age when people aren't sure whether we're shopping for ourselves or for our children. I actually like Topshop, but if I buy stuff for myself, people assume I'm shopping for a fat teenager, and if I buy stuff for my daughter, they assume I'm a skateboarding transvestite who's too old to read the sizes on the label. <laughs> Small wonder that as we get older, the lure of catalogue shopping takes over. Now, I'm not sneering at catalogues. Next is an excellent catalogue, for example. It's got the models there, and it gives you the chance to see what the clothes would look like if attractive people wore them. <laughs> But even so, although we buy fewer clothes in shops as we get older, we still manage to spend the whole weekend shopping. Sundays we used to relax, bit of worship maybe, sacrifice a leg of lamb, and then watch the cruel sea. <laughs> now we go to home base and B&Q, and there's an important point of principle here, which is that you shouldn't do DIY at all because it's scabbing. <laughs> that is skilled two sugars, please. City and guilds, tradespersons work, and you are scabbing. If you truly, absolutely have to do something yourself, there are shops open Monday to Saturday. Real builders, merchants, and hardware stores are never open on a Sunday. And they are magic kingdoms where wise and helpful people seek out anything you need. You go in and, then, and there's smoke comes out the back and a faint whiff of opium. <laughs> And you can say, I need a rule plug that enables me to screw an elephant to a Rivita, and they will find it. 
Or if they can't find it, they will suggest an ostensibly competing store with the words, Ask for Tony. <laughs> in a way that suggests a fraternity bordering on organised crime. In fact, it's time the Brotherhood closed down the big DIY stores completely by making them an offer they can't assemble. <laughs> then we'd see no more adverts in which Neil Morrissey and Leslie Ash pretend to be a couple, mindlessly piloting giant trolleys through bleak canyons of grouting and sealant, <laughs> buying lips that are too cumbersome to put together. <laughs> Those adverts are particularly disturbing. Not only are they not a real couple, they are barely even a real TV couple. They are an advert couple, inhabitants of a world in which retiling the shower brings meaning to people's lives. <laughs> what is the point in having a day off if you spend it doing other people's work, doing it badly and not being paid for it? If you really can't face the idea of enjoying Sunday, get a job stacking the bread counter at Sainsbury's, make a few quid and take the pressure off full-time shop workers who'd rather not work Sundays. In fact, what's worse than wasting your Sunday trying to do things you can't do is wasting the previous Sunday buying the materials. <laughs> At least when you've cut something up, you can say you've tried and then phone the plumber. The previous Sunday, all you did was traipse mournfully around desolate warehouse stores on the edge of town and the very edge of existence, buying the wrong bits from teenage moon calves. <laughs> However, I mention bread because if Sunday trading involved fair pay and conditions and union membership, I would be heartily in favour of it. There was a time in this country when if you hadn't bought bread by Saturday lunchtime on a bank holiday weekend, you would have to go without until Tuesday. So, much of our precious leisure time was spent without a basic foodstuff. Once I had to make do with a box of Energen rolls, not having made it to Presto in time. <laughs> all those adverts about low-cow bread being light were understated. The box was lighter than an empty box. <laughs> and pushing a knife into a roll had the same effect as Buffy staking a vampire. Fragmentation, then dust, then nothing. <laughs> Seven-day shopping is a bind if you're a shop worker forced to do Sundays without overtime, but I have to say it's nice being able to buy bread on the Lord's Day. Communion wafers are insubstantial and tend to crumble when you spread cream cheese on them. <laughs> But how did the Sabbath come about? And God saw everything that he had made, and it was good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all host of them. God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day, and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. Terrible syntax, but still, <laughs> the point is made. So we are told that God spent six days creating the world and was then knackered. But I'm not certain the job was finished. It might be that he ran out of dado rail and that Travis Perkins is shut on a Sunday and being a skilled tradesperson, he wouldn't stoop to be in queue. Then he had a site job starting on the Monday, promised to finish Earth on the Saturday, but had a heavy night Friday and forgot. So he never did make good, which is a problem because he had already made evil. <laughs> But there is a major flaw in this argument because in those days the Sabbath was on a Saturday. Shabbat, Shabbat. Christians decided to have it on Sunday because of the crucifixion, perhaps reasoning that if you can't buy timber and six-inch nails, there's a chance any future executions of the Messiah might be stayed pending materials. 
but today it wouldn't work because the Romans could just go to World of Crosses on the pearly way <laughs> and buy a self-assembly crucifix in a flat pack. After it had been done to Jesus, crucifixion acquired a bad name. Otherwise, they'd do it in Texas. It's a little known fact that George Bush wears a silver electric chair on a chain round his neck. But I digress. Given that we don't seem to be able to relax on weekends, what we really need is a holiday. Of course, we used to have more mini-holidays. Days out, picnics. We went in for Sunday motoring, which meant eating those hard-boiled eggs with grey oaks you don't see anymore. Parked in a levi on the A3. We had an enormous black thermos flask with a handle that looked as though it should contain radioactive isotopes or frozen sperm. <laughs> in the summer, it held very dilute orange squash and ice cubes, and in the winter, it held lukewarm vegetable soup that slipped down easily and slipped back up just as readily and completely unchanged. <laughs> and in the summer, we might go to the seaside, and I dimly remember picking krill and oil spill out of knitted trunks while the seagulls pecked my nan's eyes out. <laughs> Bizarrely, after decades of the British trying to leave the country whenever possible and the entire countryside being shut down by foot and mouth two years ago, holidaying at home has had a big revival. Gordon, you've done a lot of work on TV travel shows. Have you noticed a trend back towards domestic holidays? Yeah, too right. I mean, time was when you could swing a Barbados or a Nile cruise or deep-sea fishing off the Florida Keys. Lately, it's been whitewater barge cruises on the Telford Canal, landscape spotting in East Anglia... <laughs> and mountain rescue time-wasting in the Lake District. We had a really nice British holiday for New Year. A hundred of us hired a converted oyster weaver's hovel in Dunstable. And we all shared the cooking and the toilet, and it was really, really relaxing because none of us spoke to each other at all. Oh, and stupidly, I agreed to go to a hotel just outside Glasgow for a murder mystery weekend. Of course, the detective got the wrong guy, beat the crap out of some poor foot spa salesman from Stockholm. <laughs> He was only staying there in business, but ends up confessing to beating Elsie the scullery maid to death with the Tongan fertility symbol. <laughs> to be fair, we do have a beautiful country, but it's home, and sometimes you have to get away from home for a proper break. The trouble with the British, however, is that we're only good at enjoying ourselves at the expense of others, and I'm not talking about the royal family here. <laughs> we have two possible reactions to an overseas holiday location. Either we want to experience nothing that is indigenous to the place and we tour the cafes of Amalfi in search of cornettos and spaghetti hoops, or we want to patronise it in the worst sense, to treat it as another cultural conquest, another notch on the suitcase. Many of us trot out the boast, We didn't want to do what the tourists do. To which the only reply is, Well, why didn't you stay at home then, you miserable bastard? <laughs> Middle-class people are the worst for this. Their holiday must always be some remarkable and fantastic adventure. Oh, we discovered this little village completely off the beaten track, not on the tourist trail at all, middle of nowhere. Tiny, tiny place. I think it only appears once every 200 years. <laughs> Lovely people, so friendly. Tiny, tiny people. No bigger than your thumb. Simple, but happy. And he had this fantastic sort of ad hoc dining room carved out of volcanic lava that was still flowing. <laughs> and he cooked us this wonderful meal. There was eight or nine courses. They gave us the wine and their local brandy. And they danced for us and had sex with us. And I think the whole bill came to two pounds a head. <laughs> point is, whether you go on holiday to visit bustling markets and beat down their already pitifully low prices, or to meet the real people, as opposed to the ones everybody else sees who aren't real at all, 
You're still a tourist. Even if you had an amazing time and lived really naturally, apart from the all-important mechanical bird that got you there, you are a tourist. Even if you met people who live without electricity, despite their pleas for the government to connect them so they can have fridges and less food poisoning, you are still a tourist. You're just nosier than most. And if you, <laughs> if you travel for months and months and months, you're just a holidaymaker who takes longer breaks than everyone else. And even then, you haven't seen that much. You say you took a year off to travel around the world. It takes a year to travel around the M25. <laughs> and what does it mean to have seen something? I've seen a Rolls Royce, but really only scratched the surface. <laughs> right, well, it's nearly time to go. But I think we can fit in a couple of questions from the studio audience. Uh, if you've got any questions about finance or fashion or personal fitness, do speak <laughs> into the microphone. Gentleman in the front row. Um, if George Bush was a leisure activity, what would he be? <laughs> <laughs> I think assisted suicide, really. <laughs> There's a person at the back, there's a hand up. Sorry, you had to be someone at the back. You couldn't have been in the front row, could you? No. Oh, did you try to get in the front row? Did you? Did you? You could have fought this lot, they don't look that hard. <laughs> what advice would you give to servicemen serving in the Gulf? Try and get a gig on a fire station would be my thing. <laughs> I'm annoyed with soldiers at the moment, because they're sitting around saying, look at these fire stations, well, except they're all Geordies. Look at these, and Scousers. Look at these fire stations, and, and other accents. And they're... Uh... <laughs> Other parts were paid by members of the cast. <laughs> they're saying, well, look at all these firefighters. Half the time they get paid, and half the time they're not fight fighting any fires. In which case, we should turn around to the soldiers and say, all right, then, you are only to be paid when you're actually killing people. <laughs> in fact, no, we won't count when you're fighting in bars in Cyprus. <laughs> you will only be paid as soldiers when you are defending the coastline of Great Britain <laughs> against invasion, which hasn't happened since... Um, the 11th century, as I recall. <laughs> so, um, any other questions? It's a lady there. Okay, um, as you proved earlier, you're a great fan of sports. How would you sell the Olympic Games to the average non-sports fan taxpayer? You're asking me. <laughs> I get whiplash in rocking chairs, me. <laughs> now, the, the place they should have the Olympics, it's got to be Manchester, isn't it? Because then the drugs thing wouldn't be an issue at all, would it? <laughs> All the trainers would just be shot by the local dean because you're moving in our territory, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think they should have drugs in sport. You just shouldn't be able to choose what you're getting. <laughs> Everyone gets a party bag. <laughs> and you don't know what's going to be in it. Uh, I think that's enough, really. Enough of your damn questions. I didn't come here to be interrogated. <laughs> right. Well, it's nearly time to go. So, Cass, anything more from Paul Burrell? Uh, no, but we've got a message from a conspiracy theorist. He reckons the Queen Mother's still alive. What? No, that one could be true. Think about it. Royal Jubilee heading for disaster. Suddenly, massive wave of popularity for the royals because of the so-called death of the Queen Mum. All a bit too convenient, don't you think? Absolutely. She's not dead. She's off in Brazil being cloned. There's no one in that coffin. Just a sweater stuffed with old tights and some sandbags. Which is why they couldn't agree to Tony Blair's request to be photographed in the coffin with her. Well, I'm glad you said that, not me. Good night, all.
Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy, who have no choice but to do his evil bidding. Ultimate responsibility lies with the producer, David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for the BBC, who endorse all Mr Hardy's views wholeheartedly. (laughs) 